And again, Nate, we welcome you to Newport Church. And uh, just if you would, tell us real quick just about yourself and your family. We've had opportunity, several of us, to, to meet Aaron and the family. Just uh, tell us a little bit about how you have come to this place in your life. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. It's been great to talk to so many of you, and thank you for welcoming us warmly. And look forward to talking to some more of you after the service. Um, my name is Nate Taylor. My wife, I was going to point to them in the back, but she had to step out. My, my wife is Erin, and we have three children. Ruby, who's the curly-headed one, is five years old. Lucy is our middle child. She's uh, three and a half, um, but she's almost four, and she'll probably tell you that. And then Ollie is the one for the departure out of the sanctuary, who's one and a half. Uh, he's just been deciding to wake up super early in the morning, so getting him to nap time doesn't quite happen. So there's the five of us. We live in Kirkwood. I am the associate pastor there at Trinity Church Kirkwood. I've been there for about five plus years. We moved to St. Louis eight plus years ago now so I could attend Covenant Seminary. I've been doing youth ministry in Florida and felt like I wanted to continue to do ministry and also felt like I had no idea what I was doing. And so I feel like I just know a little bit more of what I'm doing now. Um, but yeah, we've loved our time in here in St. Louis, and we're looking at a ministry transition uh, upcoming, Lord willing, at the end of the summer is what we're aiming for, but it depends on support raising. We're going with Mission to the World to Glasgow, Scotland. Okay. And if you would, just what, what do you have kind of a vision mm -hmm. of what that ministry might look like, Nate? Yeah, so the partnership that we're um, going into is one with the Free Church of Scotland. It's a Presbyterian denomination. There in Scotland, there's like five Presbyterian denominations in Scotland, all claiming to be the true one. Um, but but <laughs> the Free Church of Scotland is um, a, a conservative, Bible-believing, confessional Presbyterian denomination. Uh, the Church of Scotland, which is the larger one, has kind of gone the way of not believing anything in the Bible nor listening to the Westminster Confession. And so we're coming at their invitation in the midst of the decline of Christianity in Scotland they have a vision of planting 30 churches by 2030. And great vision. They're partnering with some other smaller denominations there in Scotland, but also they reached out to Mission to the World, the, um, the missions agency of the PCA, to say, if you have any pastors, can you come and help us with this goal of planting 30 churches by 2030? So we're not landing on the ground and planting a church right away, because even though we speak the same language, there's a lot to learn. So I am going to be, for the first year, the minister of discipleship at a church right in the heart of Glasgow called Glasgow City Free Church. They see themselves as the big resource, resource church in Glasgow. So they're about like 100, 150 people. That's like the mega church there. And so we'll be learning, helping them with discipleship and creating partnerships to plant and partner with national pastors to get churches started towards this goal of 30 churches by 2030. Kind of the goal then, too, is to be able to come alongside, get it started or come alongside and then hand off to a Scottish pastor to then be able to plant more churches. Yeah. And, and I've been intrigued by this ministry call that, that Nate has received, along with a couple other brothers in Presbytery who, who are going to be serving in England, the Netherlands. You have some of these places which were really the... the a, a great center of Christianity in a place where the gospel was set forth around the world for so many hundreds of years, and now those very countries, Christianity has really gone into just this terrible decline. And, and I'm, I'm interested, in, and I would encourage us to, to kind of 
learn from what Nate's experiences might be over the course of these coming years and some of these other folks serving in these countries because that may help us as we seek to proclaim the gospel here in the United States where we've also seen a, in, in certain ways a decline of Christianity in certain many reasons. So, so that's one of the reasons that I wanted to introduce the congregation to, to Nate. Um, now, can you tell me, Nate, are there any particular ways? I mean, we can assume some ways of praying for you and your family. Any, any other particular ways? Yeah, I mean, just that the Lord would sustain us. This is a weird season to be in of looking towards the future and being here. And I'm even going to get into that in the sermon a little bit. But just that, um, that we would trust the Lord through every little step. We've got a lot of plans. And every time we make plans, it seems to not go that way. That the Lord would provide for us, um, not just spiritually, but in the funding that we need. We have to be 100% funded in order, to over to go, in order to go over there. Churches there don't have a lot of money. So you know we're raising all of our everything in order to go over. Um, and then that just the Lord would bless the ministry over there in um, the city of Glasgow. They estimate that less than 1.5% of the population attend a Bible-believing church, as generous as you can be with that definition of any kind on a Sunday morning. So the place that used to be this like birthplace of Presbyterianism as we know it um, is now a really dark place. So just that the Lord would bless our efforts in that. And Lord, that is our prayer. Lord, that you would receive more worship from more worshipers. Lord, uh, we thank you for how you have sustained our little church of Newport over this last difficult year. Lord, we thank you that you have sustained your church around the world and throughout all the age. And Jesus, you have promised that you will continue to do that. And not only that you would sustain your church, but that you would expand your church. And Lord, we thank you that you have not given up on Scotland. You have not given up on England, on Spain, on the Canary Islands, on Chile, on Colombia. You have not given up on Newport. Lord, we thank you that you are the God who is faithful to his covenants, faithful to his covenant people. Lord, would you continue to show your faithfulness and your provision to Nate and to Aaron and their family as they, as they continue to support raising, Lord? Lord, would you lead them to ministry partners, both individuals and churches, so that this particular work of, of the kingdom may go forth? And Lord, bless that church, bless the city of Glasgow and, and the nation of Scotland to receive their ministry. And Lord, we pray that you will blow the minds of these people who have said, let's establish 30 churches by 2030. Lord, I pray that that number might be 130 or 230. Um, Lord, but more importantly than the number of churches or the number of souls. Lord, would you be pleased as faithful men and women, boys and girls in Scotland, including Nate and Aaron and their children. Lord, that as they devote themselves to you and to the gospel, Lord, would you be, be pleased to save souls and add to the number of those in Scotland who know you and love you each and every day, Lord. And now bless the proclamation of your word from this servant, I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Daryl. Again, it's great to be with you all this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Exodus chapter 4. And we're just going to be reading one verse, Exodus 4, verse 2. As we were talking about, there's this time of transition 
right now for my family, and it's got me all sorts of nostalgic. I'm looking back on the last five years of ministry at the church, first five years of ordained ministry, worked in the church longer than that. But, um, you know, it's been, it's been a really special place we've been at, at Trinity Church Kirkwood, and there's lots of good memories. Um, and then we're also excited looking towards Scotland. We're excited for change and the challenges and things like that. And at the same time, I've, I've also looked back and wondered, what have I accomplished? What have I done? Is any of it going to last? I'm just about to walk away. I'm going to miss these people. Did I make the right decisions, right? It's easy to kind of look back and second guess. And, and then at times, also as exciting as it is to think about this upcoming move across the pond, at the same time, I'm going, what are we doing? Like we keep hearing all of these phrases that we use in um, English in America, and we pick the place that speaks English, and yet if we say those phrases by accident, we're going to offend like a crowd of people, right? We're def- that's definitely going to happen. Not, not only that, 30 churches by th- 2030 sounds so great, and I'm sitting there going, like, what? Like, what can we do? Like, 99% of the people don't know Jesus. What are we actually going to accomplish? Uh, the transition from Florida to St. Louis was hard enough. Are any of our ministry gifts going to translate culturally to Scotland? What is going to happen? Is it going to be worth it? Can God actually use us? And I wanted to talk about this morning with y'all because that's a question and a thing that happens to so many of us. A lot of times we're asking the same thing about life. We're looking back and wondering, what did God do with that? And we're looking forward to and wondering what is going to come. At moments of transition, we ask questions like this. You go into your new job and you wonder, am I going to make it? I got to prove myself, right? Your, your ch- child is about to go off to college and you ask questions like, Did I do enough? Did I train them enough? We ask questions like this all the time in church life. We we think things like, can I make an impact? You know, evangelism, discipleship, generosity. That's got to be for the super resourced, super trained people, right? Like the MDivs or the people who just kind of like that Bible trivia stuff, right? Those are the ones that God's going to use. Can he actually use me? Am I as sanctified as I expected to be at this age in my life? Can you use our church? Like, I've never been part of a megachurch. I don't have gazillions of dollars. What's he going to do with his people in the place where he is? Let's see if God's word can help us here. A little bit of context for this one verse that we're going to read. Um, there's this group of people called the Israelites, right? And God has saved them. He's called them to himself, and he's made these promises to this guy named Abraham. And Abraham has children, and those children have children, and they end up having to go down to Egypt. And they grow into a mighty nation, but a little bit too big, because their host country gets a little bit scared of them, and so they put them into slavery, and they've been enslaved for 400 years. But it says earlier in Exodus that God hears the cry of his people. He has heard their cry and he's remembered his promises. And so what does he do? He's going to raise up a liberator, one who's going to lead his people and bring them out of slavery to the land of promise. And so we meet this guy named Moses. 
right? He's been saved in the Nile amongst the reeds and raised in Pharaoh's house, and he gets angry and takes it out on another Egyptian, has to flee for his life, and he's become a shepherd in the land of Midian. And he's leading his flock of sheep out into the wilderness, and he comes to Mount Horeb, or as many of us know it, Mount Sinai. It's the place later where the Ten Commandments are given. And while he is there, he encounters something you and I have never encountered, a burning bush. Except this bush, though it's burning, it's not consumed by fire. And God speaks to him through the bush. And he, and he tells him that he is going to use Moses to bring his people out of Egypt. And he says, you know what you need to do, Moses, shepherd guy? I want you to go into the throne room of the most powerful guy in the world, the Pharaoh, and you're going to tell him, let Yahweh's people go. And Moses is like, who am I going to say sent me? I, and God says, I am who I am. And Moses kind of goes, you talk, you talking like me? You want me to do this? Are you sure you've got the right guy? I don't know if I'm qualified for this task. Surely there's another shepherd behind me or some awesome ministry guy that you want to use. And God says, no, (laughs) he wants to use Moses. And Moses is worried that not only is he going to be afraid, not only going to fail, but the people of Israel won't even listen to him. And so God assures him by giving him three signs, three signs. That's the context of chapter four. He says, he, he turns, he says, you know, take your staff, throw it on the ground, turns into a stake, grabs it, turns back into a staff. First sign. The second one that he gives, he says, take your hand, stick it in your coat, pull it out. Ah, leprosy. Put it back in. It's healed. And then the last one, he takes a staff, and, um, excuse me, he takes the water from the Nile and pours it on the ground and it turns, and, turns into blood. These are all prefiguring the, the plagues and the, the deeds and the signs that Moses is going to do not only um, before the people of Israel, but before the nation of Egypt, okay? And here, we just got a question. We're just going to look at a question and an answer. And in it, I think, is just a theme that runs throughout all of Scripture. So listen up, just, just one verse. You know, usually I preach on a longer passage, but just one verse this morning. This is God's word. Listen up. The Lord said to him, to Moses, what is in your hand? He said, a staff. It's God's word. It's completely true. And he gives it to us because he loves us. Would you pray with me? <coughs> Father, we do ask that we would hear from you this morning. Spirit, we pray that not only would we know the truth, but that you would inflame our hearts for Christ. And we pray this in the name of our Savior Christ. Amen. There's this guy named John Bechtel. I, I think he's still alive, actually. But it was the 1950s, and he lived in China, and he had this vision for impacting the country of China. What he wanted to do, when he felt the Lord was calling him to, was to build orphanages there. And, and he thought it would be an easy process. So he goes and he networks with all these different people that he knows in China. Um, he knew a lot of people in the government. Every time he'd ask, though, the answer was, no, we don't want to do that. He tried all the avenues, all the connections that he had, and every single time the answer was no. So one guy told him, you know what you need to do, John? You need to go to America where they have a lot of money. And what you're going to do is you're going to go on this speaking tour. You're going to go around and you're going to tell people about this vision that God's laid on your heart. 
and you, um, they're gonna, you're going to ask for money, they're going to give you, and that is how you are going to plant, um, start these orphanages in China. So he does that. Flies over to America, goes around, meets with a bunch of people, um, talks passionately about this burden that the Lord's placed on his heart, and does it for months, and heads back to China and waits. Waits. And finally, the mail comes. There's a brown envelope. He opens it up, and there's a letter from this friend who set him up with all these speaking engagements, and he says, John, here is all the money that you've raised from all of these different speaking engagements. And he pulls it out, and there's one dollar. True story. True story. There's one dollar in there. Have you ever felt discouraged? <laughs> like all of your efforts just keep seeming to be frustrated. You have these goals, right? These good goals, but you've tried and it just ain't happening. One can easily feel inadequate in life. You try it and it's like you got this one lousy buck for all of your efforts. And you start to ask, can God use me? We're Presbyterian, right? Good theology. God can do all his holy will, right? Um, the question is, will God use me, right? Not only can God use me, yeah, sure, but will he actually use me? And we hem and haw somewhere between defeated pessimism and overrealized optimism. And sometimes we're actually afraid that God might use us, might call us to do something, and we fear failure and embarrassment, like going on a massive fundraising tour and raising $1, I'm glad to stand here before you right now and all of our fundraising efforts were, were a little bit above a dollar. Right? In our passage, God is calling Moses to a task. Moses feels very inadequate, has lots of fears, and yet God seeks to reassure him in that. He does it in an interesting way. And while you and I were not Moses, this passage applies to us because there's a basic pattern in it. And it's this. I want, this is your outline for this morning for all you note takers. First off, our inadequacy. Second, God's sufficiency. And last, our call. Our inadequacy, God's sufficiency, and then our call. First off, our inadequacy. What's the question? What's that in your hand? Like many other places in Scripture, God asks a question not because he needs a new bit of information, but because he's about to make a point and draw attention to something. It's a simple question, right? What's in your hand? And not only is it a simple question, it's kind of interesting that it is a question. Like, why doesn't he just state it? Look at your hand, Moses. He actually does that for the next one, right? He says, take your hand, put it in your coat, take it out. It's leprous, put it back. Okay, heal. But he doesn't ask a question then. But here he asks a question. What's that in your hand? There's a special attention that gets drawn to this staff of Moses. In fact... This beginning, there's this little section here in chapter 4, and it begins by God drawing attention to the staff of Moses. And verse 17, God says at the end, take in your hand this staff with which you shall do these signs. It's like this bookend to this section. Staff, staff. You see, in the ancient Near East, your staff was both a basic possession and a prized possession. Uh, Both men and women would actually have staffs. Only men are mentioned having staff. In scripture, um, but you study archaeology and history and say even women would walk around with a staff. Everybody had a staff. It's kind of ubiquitous. It's an assumed belonging. I don't know if you remember John, uh, in Luke 9, Jesus sends out the disciples two by two. 
and he tells them to leave stuff by. He says, don't bring, don't bring a staff, your bag, your bread, or your money. Basically, he's saying, you know, as common as food and money are is a staff to a person in the ancient Near East. A staff could be used to identify oneself, kind of like a passport. In Genesis 38, Judah leaves his staff as kind of a, a pledge, but also like everybody apparently knows that that's Judah's staff. I don't know if you carved his name into it or something. It could also be used to protect yourself from a wild animal. Right? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. What does it say? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What's the comfort? Well, if you're a helpless little sheep, you better hope your shepherd has a staff to beat off the wild animals. Right? Not only that, a staff can be used just, just to lean on. Genesis 47, um, Jacob's about to bless his sons, and he, he's old, and he can't stand, and he's just leaning on a staff. That's what's in your hand in those times, a staff. Everybody had a staff in their hand. And, and it's so common, you wouldn't think much of it. Almost forget about it, like, you know, if you're searching for your reading glasses, and they're on top of your head. Like, oh, like, where are your reading glasses? Oh, oh, on my head. What's in your hand? Oh, my My staff. Forgot, forgot about it. Just kind of feels like part of me. Hence, <laughs> when Moses throws it down onto the ground, we got to understand this. It's not like Moses' voodoo stick. Moses has never done any magic before. And so he throws it down on the ground and it turns into a snake. And I love, if you, if you read in verse 3, what does he do? What I would do if my staff turned into a snake. He hightails it. He says he runs away. It's like, ah, a snake. He gets out of there. He's not expecting this to happen. It's just an ordinary staff. As a tool to take on Pharaoh and convince Yahweh's people that Moses is the one to do this task, you would think there would be a better tool than a staff, right? But it's there. It's what he's got. And Moses, he's protesting. He's not an adequate leader, right? He'll be ineffective. He'll even mention in a few verses, he's like, hey, I'm not a very good public speaker, and it sounds like this job is a lot of public speaking. Ergo, you should probably pick someone else. He's not lying about that, right? So many times we get stuck following God because doing so exposes our inadequacies and our insecurities. You know, no, we, we would rather stay put and forsake the offer of joy because of the possibility of shame. That's why many of us are more ready and willing to bear someone else's burdens than to let someone else bear our burdens because we don't like to admit that we have any. We often stop before we start like Moses is trying to do because of this feeling of inadequacy. And a lot of times we realize, you know, our resources, they're not limitless and we feel useless. All I got is this lousy staff. I mean, no offense, staff, but you're just a staff. God asks about it. On the flip side, you know, one of the ways that churches and ministries and just about anything in life will blow up is what we confessed earlier in the call to confession. It's when when pride creeps in, right? When we think, I actually got this. I'm actually adequate. Everybody step out of my way and do it my way. The first lie of the serpent in Genesis 3 is that we can make it on our own apart from God. You're self-sufficient. What do we read in Proverbs 16.9? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. found this to be true. I did youth ministry before having kids. And I read books on youth ministry. And I would like to tell parents, these are the trends. These are the things you must do. 
Then I had kids. You know, there's, there's an infinite difference between writing a book on childhood development and sitting there with a piece of broccoli on your fork and just being like, can you please take a bite? You might feel adequate knowing all the theory and then you get down to the practice where the rubber meets the road and you realize you're limited. So we're right to see our inadequacy, but we're wrong if we stop there. So that's the first thing is our inadequacy. But the second thing is God asks it actually to show his sufficiency. Let me ask again, what's in your hand? Moses says a staff. It's this simple, everyday object. Simple thing that he has. He's been carrying with him for so long. But if you think about it, this staff has a story too. This staff is actually the staff that Moses takes with him and goes into the very throne room of the most powerful person in the world. This staff and his brother Aaron's is the one that gets stretched out over Egypt to bring signs of plague showing that Yahweh is stronger than all of the false gods of Egypt. This staff is the one that strikes the Nile to turn it to blood. This staff is the one that gets raised over the Red Sea, parting it to bring salvation to God's people. This staff is the one that Moses holds over his head and his arms are so weak other people have to hold it up so that they can win in the battle against the Amalekites. This staff is the staff that strikes the rock in the desert when water pours forth, bringing something that will quench the thirst of people who desperately need water. Did Moses' staff have some sort of power in and of itself? Like he had got it in some magical forest from some magical tree and he just got like, hey, by the way, you've had a magical staff this whole time. Of course not, right? Of course not. The point of calling attention to the staff is that it's clear that God is the one doing this. Later in chapter 4, after Moses has finally agreed to this staff, this task, he, he packs up his family and he's obeying God and he's going from Midian back to Israel. And you know what it says he does? Takes his family takes his children, packs everything he can, and says in verse 20, and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. This isn't the only place in the Bible where God chooses to use the small and the overlooked. How are we going to take down that really tall giant who's blaspheming God's name? Five small stones and a little shepherd boy. How are we going to defeat the Midianites? Gideon, go get 32,000 people. White, 10,000. Too much. 300. How are we going to feed thousands of hungry people in this crowd? It's five loaves of bread and a couple fish. God is constantly flipping things around to show that it is only by his grace and provision that anything is going to be accomplished. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Yes, you and I, we are utterly inadequate. But we know an all-sufficient God. With Moses, just a staff. With God, with God, right, it's the staff of God. God gives Moses signs to assure him and the people as they confront the powers of Egypt. What's a sign? What's, what he's talked about it as a sign, right? Taking the staff and doing these things, turning it into a serpent and picking it up. What's a sign? Well, a sign is not all about itself. 
right? A sign points beyond itself. A sign points beyond itself. What is this pointing to? That, that God is greater than the strongest powers in the world and that he delights to use the inadequate to accomplish his purposes. The small, the overlooked, the simple, the mundane. There's a Tom Cruise movie from some years ago called Night and Day. I think it's like Cameron Diaz is the, the actress in it and it's this action flick. And um, the character for Cameron Diaz, her name's June, and she kind of gets caught up. She meets this guy, the Tom Cruise character, who is, of course, an action star, right? He's, he's some secret spy guy and does a bunch of action scenes. And she's the unassuming one who kind of happens to get caught up in all of these shenanigans. And at one point, he's trying to help her, and they're going along, and all the bad guys are shooting guns every which way. And she's like, I am done. I am getting out of here. I got to run away. Tom Cruise and his overacting, he looks at her and he says, June, June, you want to go? You can go. But I just want you to know, June, your chances of survival out there are not very good. There are a lot of bad guys with guns who want to get you. He says, June, this is what it's like. With me, without me. With me, without me. With me, without me. Why do we mention that? It's as if God's saying to Moses, hey, listen. You want to go to Pharaoh? You're going to do this stuff? Without me, your chances of survival are not very good for 10 minutes. They might just take you out. But with me. With me. Watch and see. But that's just Moses, right? What about us? Come on, preacher. Not Moses. This is applied to us. We want to know, how can I experience this assurance that God is for me and that God will use me? You see, centuries later, there's this guy who's walking around. And some people call him a shepherd. In fact, he calls himself the good shepherd. And a lot of people are wondering what he's going to do, and they're putting their hopes in him. And he woes around, and he's flipping things upside down. And he's the only one who's ever lived who's not inadequate. In fact, he's the very radiance of the glory of God. And shock of all shocks, he gets arrested. And in Matthew 27, there's this band of soldiers as he's on trial, and they're kind of putting him through the ringer. And they're mocking him and they're spitting on him and they're hitting him. And you know what they do? They shove a staff in his hand. Put a crown of thorns on his head. And they mock him and say, huh, look at you. You had all these plans. All of these good plans. What have they come to? Nothing. And he goes to the cross and the cross is there by Rome to kind of squelch those who might rise up and think they can actually accomplish something in the empire. And you're supposed to see, no, this is what happens to those who actually trust and think that they can do something that goes against the powers of this world. And look at them. They're like a billboard of shame. Their inadequacy is there for all to see. And it's supposed to also tell those who follow them, "Uh uh-uh, you don't want to end up like that. That's what happens to those who try to do more than they're supposed to, who don't know their place, 
this one whom Psalm 20 says, Psalm 23 says, it speaks of his rod and his staff comforting. He's given a staff of mockery, of futility. Well, we already said God delights to use things in this world that the world overlooks. What seems to be buried in failure and oblivion, God raises up. God raises up. God's sufficiency doesn't just counteract our inadequacy when we come to him. He overwhelms our inadequacy. You know, it's not like we come in and we say, hey, God, I don't have a lot. And he's like, oh, okay, you don't have a lot. I'll give you a little. Here's a little pat on the back, a little motivational thing. On your way, go out. Rather, his grace is like a flood into our hearts. And his spirit comes to you and to me. Paul says in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also graciously give us all things? All things. And this it's not like a name it, claim it thing, like, hey, whatever I want to do, I'm going to get. No, the point is that whatever he gives you, his grace is meeting you. And when you are weak, you are strong. Because you've come to an end in yourself. On your own, you're going to make a mess of it. I've tried it. I've done it a thousand times. But with God, what's in your hand? So we often see our inadequacy, but the gospel tells us that our inadequacy is met and overwhelmed by God's sufficiency. So the end, right? Go to lunch. That's all. You can't do it. Jesus did it. No, got one more point, right? Last thing is our call. Because so many times we get stopped because we see our inadequacy and you're like, I can't do anything. Like, what am I supposed to do? Like, tell other people about Jesus. Um, step up in my small group. Share something that, that, ooh, you know, I don't know if I want anybody to know that. What, what impact is it going to have? What can I actually do? And then you get to the next step and you're like, no, but actually God delights to use the small, the overlooked. He likes to work through your weaknesses. And you go, okay, great, God, do it. I'm just going to step back. God, I'm going to watch you work. I don't want to say I can do this because then it might seem too boastful. And we miss our call in that. Let me ask you a third time. What's in your hand? We've seen the inadequacy of Moses and his staff to take on Egypt. But God delights to use such inadequate things. Therefore, what? Go do something. Go do something. What's the point for Moses? Yeah, sure. Moses, you got all of these things that might not make you the best ideal leader of God's people. Sure, those things are there. But I am with you. Same promise that Jesus gives to his disciples. I am with you even to the end of the age. And because I go with you, it's not like Moses stands there and goes, Okay, well, God, why don't don't you just take my staff and go do something? Rather, what does he do? He goes to Egypt. He acts. He acts. Let me apply this to us. First thing, don't save ministry for those who have degrees. God promises to be with you, even to the end of the age. It's not about checking all the boxes of ministry aptitude, as wonderful as training can be. It's about trusting the God who can use a staff. Do we believe that not only God opposes the proud, but also that he actually gives his grace To the humble. It's not about boasting in your own doing, but believing that God actually invites you 
and me to participate in his mission, in his world, with his people, with his promises. Second thing, also, would you do things that wouldn't make sense in this world if there was no God? After Moses hightails it, God tells him to pick up the snake by the tail. Not a snake expert, but what I hear is you're not supposed to do that because they kind of bend and they can bite you, right? You pick it up by the head. And Moses, you just run away, you come back and you're like, pick it up. Are you kidding me? By the tail? Doesn't make any sense unless there's a God who actually can do something. What does that mean for us? What could that look like for you and for me? We befriend and welcome people very different from ourselves. We forgive a lot, refusing to simply buy into a cancel culture where there's one mistake and you're done. We're willing to talk about our own inadequacies because when I am weak, he is strong. Therefore, I will boast all the more in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Third application, commit yourself to a life dependent and watchful in prayer. See the signs of God's goodness and his promise keeping. We need eyes to see that. It's not necessarily that he's calling us to do massive things, right? He's calling us to be faithful where we are. It can be small, mundane areas of faithfulness, like daily, weekly prayer. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. Paul's talked about the resurrection. You know what he says at the end? Therefore... Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, that knowing in the Lord your labor is not in vain. One commentator says on this, since it's done in the Lord, it can no more perish than he. Maybe a simple application is just to call your stuff gods. What's in your hand? Moses would say, not just a staff, my staff. And by the end, whose staff is it? It's God's staff. What's in your hand? You've got money? It's God's money. You've got time? It's God's time. You've got gifts? It's God's gifts. Actually, we call them gifts given by the Spirit, right? He gives them to you so that you might use them for the benefit of others. Let's go back to John Bechtel. I was telling you about at the beginning. You know, he, he's done all the support raising. He's got this letter. He opens it up, and there's one lousy dollar in there. In there, though, is also a letter from a 12-year-old girl who said, hey, I was at one of your speaking engagements and I was so moved by it. I wanted to give you everything that I had. And here it is, this one dollar. And he was so moved by it. Do you know what he did? He went to this um, building that he saw with a, a for sale sign on it. And he turned in that one dollar and that letter. Here's my bid. And the people who got it were so moved by it that they gave him this building and it was the first orphanage that he started. And later, many years later, he's back in the United States and he tells this story. And at the very end, this young woman comes up to him and says, that was my dollar. I'm the one who sent that. He was so blown away, he called her back in and gathered everybody and told the story and said that it was this girl. Here's my point. He was about this far from never meeting that girl and that girl never having any idea what her one dollar did. 
one day, someday, God will pull back the curtain and he will show us all the dollars that we've given to him. Sometimes we think they're like $100 bills, $1,000 bills, but they're, they're just dollars. And we're going to see what he's done with it. So what should we do? Trust him. Invest in these ways. I tell it to you, encourage you that what you sow in tears and sweat and heartache and weariness and love will be reaped and will be harvested in the very kingdom of God. What's in your hand? A staff? Awesome. Let's get going. Let's pray. Father, you know not just our inadequacies, our, our areas where, where we have a lot of fears of failure, of shame. Surely you can't use me, not my story. I, maybe I've disqualified myself. For others of us, there's a great deal of boasting where we actually feel more equipped than we actually are. Would you humble us so that we can meet you in all of your goodness and sufficiency and not stay there, Lord, but to go depending on the spirit. I pray for Newport Presbyterian Church, Lord, that every person and family here would look at their hands and see what you have given them and give it back to you and to trust you and to be faithful, whether it's the big things or the small things. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's respond by standing together and singing, take my life and let it be.
was at the funeral of that PCA pastor that Daryl mentioned earlier, Leon Pancook, and his son shared their family verse. And at the end of it, it was this, the one he who has called you is faithful. The Lord will do it. Whatever he has called you to, he promises that he's coming with you in that thing. He will not abandon you in what he's calling you to. So we go. We go with his favor and we go with his presence and we go with his blessing. Would you receive his benediction, this good word? Now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Go in peace. Thank you.